Now, as we begin this morning, I want to talk about something on my desk here at work. On my desk sits a globe. Now, I am normally the missions minister here at Landmark, and so that shouldn't surprise you that there's a globe on my desk. There's, there's some other cool stuff. There's some crosses from Ethiopia. There's a, a traffic sign that somehow made its way to my office from Turkey. There's, uh, there's some scriptures from China. There's a, a big xylophone from Burkina Faso. But there's also this globe that sits on my desk. And much to the consternation of the people who come to my office, it sits upside down, at least according to the way that we in the Northern Hemisphere think of the world. It was given to me as a gift for helping with a retreat for missionaries. And it serves as a daily reminder to me that the kingdom is upside down and that we get to be a part of turning the world upside down. Now, I've actually, I've actually taken this as a gift to missionaries before. Now, now unfortunately, I discovered something. X-rays don't pass through lead crystal. And this little globe on its stand, when you turn it upside down, on X-ray really looks a lot like a hand grenade. And, um, and as it turns out, airport personnel have a pretty significant interest in people that are getting on planes with multiple hand grenades. The, uh, the unexpected intimacy that I got to experience with some TSA personnel has somewhat diminished my desire to continue taking this as a gift to, uh, to our brothers and sisters in the field. But the upside-downness of the kingdom is a conversation that Buddy started with us back on Easter. And we're going to continue all the way well into the summer as we swim around Luke's account of the things that the Christ did while he was among us. And if we open ourselves up, if we, if we truly listen to these very true stories of the Christ, then we will all, individually as well as a church family, be transformed. We will come away changed. Now today we're going to continue this conversation by talking about one of the most significant characters in the Gospel of Luke, really in the New Testament, a man named John the Baptist. That might sound a little counterintuitive with all of this preamble and talking about the Christ and Jesus to tell you that today we're going to talk about Jesus by talking about some guy named John. But the truth is that I hope by the time we get to the end of this, you're going to realize that it's all about Jesus. Every bit of it from beginning to end, this story is his story. So this morning, we're going to consider together John's birth and his ministry, both the the expected and the unexpected parts of it. We're going to get to hear two significant chunks of scripture read this morning. We have this wacky belief here at Landmark that if we're going to study Luke, we ought to read Luke. And we're going to try to discern what all this means for us. But first, we pray. Father, we give you thanks that a man named Luke recorded these words for us. We give you thanks that John the Baptist came in the wilderness in fulfillment of prophecy. And we give you thanks most of all that the Christ came and that he is still coming. Right now, Father, open our ears and give us eyes to see the things which you would say to us this morning through the stories about your servant, John the Baptist. It's in the Christ that we pray. Amen. Now Luke's gospel starts in a funny way to me. In his preamble to Theophilus, he actually never gets around to, to, to mentioning the name Jesus, or, or for that matter, God. Instead, he jumps straight into a story about an old, faithful, barren couple before he moves on to a story about a young, faithful, virgin mother. He begins by telling us how Zechariah, during his once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to offer incense in the temple, meets Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, who has a very hard-to-believe message for John. And Gabriel, as it turns out, is in quite a mood that day. He's not going to pay any attention to, not going to brook any of, 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 of Zechariah's doubts. And so he puts Zechariah on a nine-month verbal timeout. 
for questioning the, the truth of his words. And then after he goes home, his wife Elizabeth, proving that her love language was not words of affirmation, conceives in her old age. And she reacts as she ought, praising God for taking away her shame at her barrenness. She hides herself for five months before she eventually receives a visit from her virgin, unwed, very pregnant cousin, Mary. And when Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, the child inside of her womb leaps for joy and scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit came on Elizabeth. Now, because we also know that Mary was pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, this means that in Luke's gospel, the first two people to receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit are an old barren woman and a young unwed mother. I'm telling you, it's an upside down kingdom. Now, further showing the privilege that Elizabeth received as the mother of John, it's very possible that she was the only one who actually got to hear the words of the Magnificat spoken by the mother of our Lord that very first time. And a final incident involving Elizabeth before she fades from the story is the naming of her son. It was assumed by everyone there that John was just going to be called Zach Jr. But Elizabeth, in line with what Gabriel had told her mute husband, insists that his name is John. Because you see, Zechariah means the Lord has remembered, which was God's very special message for this old barren couple. God's message for the world was John, which means God has been gracious or God has shown us favor. Now the parallels between John and Jesus' birth don't stop here. In fact, Luke really goes to great lengths in the first couple of chapters to show the similarities between the two. There's, there's the introduction of the parents, the annunciations of the birth, the mother's responses, the births themselves, how they take place. There's the naming of the children. There's the prophetic response, Zechariah for John and Simeon and Anna for Jesus. And then there's the growth, how, how they both grow physically and how they both grow strong in the spirit for John and, and in the wisdom for Jesus. And these parallel stories of, of promise and fulfillment and response all combine together to tell one story of how God at last is sending those he's chosen to save his world. But through it all though, one of the two is shown to be superior to the other. It's the, it's the unborn John who leaps when he hears the voice of the mother of his Lord. We're told that, we're told that John grows in, he grows in, he's growing up, but he's doing his in the wilderness. We're told that Jesus is doing his growing up in the sight of God and man. We're told in chapter one that John is going to be the prophet of the Most High, which is a pretty great thing. But we're told that Jesus in that same chapter will be the son of the Most High. Luke grows to great lengths to knit this story together to show us that while John the Baptist had a specific, important, prophesied, God-ordained role to play in the narrative, it is really all about Jesus. And so now with Luke's introduction of John set in its proper place in our minds, I promised you chunks of scripture. So let's get to the first of these. We want you to hear Luke chapter three, verses one through 20. So family, listen to the word of the Lord. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Traconidas, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of both Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill is going to be made low. The crooked is going to become straight and the rough places will become level ways and all will see the salvation of God. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't even begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is from these stones able to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics should share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors came to be baptized and they said, what should we do? And he said, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So the soldiers also asked him, we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. When you wonder what John's bad news was? But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, at the beginning of this reading, Luke orients us into world history as well as salvation history. And you might be tempted to skip the names of all of those rulers and where they were ruling. Goodness knows, as I was preparing to read it, I thought about skipping them. But Luke is teaching us something here. The word of the Lord came to John during a tumultuous time. Kingdoms and kings were rising and falling and, and nations were fracturing and the Israelites were not faring well under all of it. It was so tumultuous a time, in fact, that Luke had to name two high priests. The people needed a leader. Now Luke also orients us to what God is doing in his story, in his history. Luke's readers would have heard this phrase, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And they would immediately have been transported back 400 years earlier before God grew silent, when he still spoke through the voice of his prophets. And the reason they would have been transported was because the word of the Lord also came to Jeremiah and the Hosea, and Micah, and Haggai during the reign of their respective kings. The, these Old Testament references, with a few simple words, Luke tells us to get up and stand at attention because your God is about to speak. Now before we get to that though, I do just want to point out something that made me smile this week. And you have to keep in mind the sense of humor of the guy speaking. But it made me spot, smile, particularly given how hard so many in this church work these days to make guests feel welcome to our building and to our services. So right now, I unveil to you and give to you today the John the Baptist Seeker Unfriendly Worship Plan. 
The first step is to pick an inhospitable place. Make people come to it and force them to stand in the sun while you talk. Second step, you need to dress unattractively. Good job, Paul. And eat weird stuff. You can just sort of see the coffee bar that they would have had with maybe two kinds of locusts and three kinds of organic wild honey available. Uh, You need to speak offensively and be sure to call people names. Publicly call out national leaders for their lack of moral integrity. We're going to come back to that one in a minute. And encourage your followers, once you finally get a few of them, to follow someone else who's better than you are. Now, I'm making light of this because it really kind of tickled me this week. But what John did had a point. In order to fulfill the prophecies about him and to put himself in line with the Old Testament prophets of old, to speak the words of the Lord, he had to go into the wilderness and he had to speak these words. So now what about this message of his? Are there lessons in it for us? Are we really brave enough today to put ourselves into the brood of vipers? The people who perhaps have put too much trust in our roots and not enough in our fruits? It's true, John's message was to a specific group of people for a specific job, but I think there's food here for us today. Number one, work out your salvation where you are. In your job, at your school, in your family, where you live. When the people asked John the question that all preachers cannot wait to be asked, what then shall we do? Which, by the way, is phrased exactly like it is over in Acts chapter 2 when they asked Peter that question at Pentecost. Uh, That's one of the perks of having the same guy write parts 1 and 2 of this story. John tells the people to bear fruit where they live. live. He says, don't be selfish. Share. Hey, tax collectors, don't cheat. You soldiers, don't maliciously lose the strength with which you've been blessed. And I think today... His message should echo a little uncomfortably into each of our career choices. We can start today at home. You missions ministers, don't think more highly of yourselves than you ought. John might say, you accountants, congratulations on surviving another tax season. But don't forget that every one of those numbers represents a person. And some of those people need reminding about priorities. He might say, you educators, don't fill the heads but neglect the hearts of the children that you are blessed to get to teach. You servers at restaurants, be kind and show what Christ-following servers at restaurants look like even when they are tired and unappreciated. You lawyers, follow the laws of man, but never forget whose kingdom you truly serve in. And on and on until every one of us has received a word from John that ought to make us a little uncomfortable. Number two, know who you are. Now, despite John's best efforts to scare people away, despite his seeker unfriendly worship service, the people kept coming and he grew in popularity. If you were to to keep reading and you'd reach Acts, you'd find out that even, even well into Acts, John is still a popular guy. There was a prominent Jewish historian at the time, a guy named Josephus, and he spilled a lot more ink about John the Baptist than he did about the Lord that John the Baptist proclaimed. But despite that popularity, we never have even a whiff of his wavering on his own role. He knew his place. John had a very specific role to play in the kingdom, to call people to repentance and to point to the coming Messiah. So John today might ask us, who are you? What role do you have to play in the kingdom? In what ways do you call people to repentance and point to the still coming Messiah? And finally, John would probably say, prepare the way and get out of the way. 
It's the best, most pithy way I've found of describing John's ministry. He spent his life preparing the way for the coming of the Lord and getting out of the way of the Lord. We too would do well to spend our lives preparing for the second coming of the Christ or in the hearts of some of our beloved ones that don't know him yet, even the first coming of the Christ in their hearts and then getting ourselves out of the way of what God's trying to do through his Holy Spirit. I don't know how many times at the end of a day or a week or even a year that I've been able to look back and say, I didn't really prepare the way of the Lord and I, I didn't really get out of his way. Now, I know God's always going to accomplish the thing God, things God's going to accomplish, but sometimes we stumble and bumble and get in his way rather than getting on board with what he's doing and coming alongside him. One last thing before we move on to John's other significant moment on the stage in Luke. I want to give you what is not unexpected, which some might call expected. John experienced consequences for telling the truth, for confronting sin, for calling out moral corruption. This is what the people of God are called to do. We speak the truth. Now, we, we speak it in love, but every word that comes out of our mouths must always be truth. John, as a prophet, never compromised his message. Outsiders were called to a baptism of repentance. Insiders, likewise, the same message. And this ought to be true for us as well. I'm going to tell you what I think I see happening here. John looked around and he saw a corrupt leader of his nation. A man who morally made wrong choices and thought himself above the consequences. Even though he claimed to be a part of God's family. John neither raged nor raved about his politics on Facebook, but he did call him out for thinking he was somehow above God's law when it came to his own sexual behavior. And eventually, although Luke doesn't give us all the gory details, we know that it cost John his life when his country's leader proved incapable of resisting the allure of a woman who danced for him, even though he was already married. The king took his head for calling him out. Somehow, some Christians here in the West have come to believe a few untruths that we don't need to speak out about moral corruption that political correctness or appropriate political leanings somehow outweigh eternal truths or on the other side we've somehow gotten the idea that because it's the land of the free we're never going to receive persecution when we do speak the truth but I think that part of John the Baptist's message for us today is the same one that I'm working to instill in my kids at the same time I'm working to instill it in my own heart we are the people of God and we tell the truth even when it hurts Let's move on now to the second of our two readings. It's where we come to what is, for me, at least, the most unexpected part of John's story. We're going to pick this story up well into Jesus' ministry. It's during a time when John was imprisoned but not yet murdered, and Jesus was growing in popularity. So hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 30. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight and he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. 
Now, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, what then did you go out to see? Was it a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are often king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and even more than a prophet, this is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. And yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now when all the people heard this, the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by them. Now, as, as was referenced earlier around the table by Michael, I believe the most unexpected part of this story is doubt. We find this hero of the faith, this man whose birth was prophesied 400 years earlier, who had been filled with the spirit of birth and who spent his entire life living in the wilderness just because God told him to, doubting whether or not Jesus really is the one that he's been waiting on. Now, I'll be honest with you, most of the time I have heard this story with sort of a smug heart. I thought to myself, well, when the pressure was really on, the guy crumbled. Maybe out in the wilderness he was fine, but once you put him in the prison, he, he got weak. Well, I think in that reading of thinking about it that way, I know for a fact I missed some very significant words. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. So the question we need to ask is, what things? What are the things that the disciples reported to John? Well, let's, let's back up a little bit. The, thing, the three things that happened prior to this story are the Sermon on the Mount, the healing of the centurion's servant, and the raising of a widow's only son. Let's take a look at what would have happened. Now when, now when John's, apostle, John's disciples showed back up and they, and they explained to him in prison about the Sermon on the, the Plain, which is a lot like the Sermon on the Mount, John would have been totally on board with the blessings and he really would have dug those woes that he preaches in the Sermon on the Plain that he doesn't preach in the Sermon on the Mount. Sounds like it's a page right out of John's sermon book. But then the Christ got around to talking about love. And he said we're supposed to love even our enemies, which is not what you want your rescuer to say. You want your rescuer to come and beat down your enemies. You don't want him to say, love them. So then the next thing that they reported was the healing of a centurion's servant. What in the world would Jesus be doing healing the servant of one of the bad guys? The centurion's one of the oppressors. Now, now granted, in the story we're told, he's one of the good ones. He's one of the nice ones that did good stuff for the Jews, but the reality was he's one of them. He's not one of us, and any Jewish Messiah worth his salt would have done anything he could to thwart whatever it was that centurion wanted done. And finally, Jesus raised this widow's only son. And the people are proclaiming a great prophet is among us, probably because it looked a lot like what Elijah did when Elijah raised a widow's only son. So what's wrong with that? The problem with that is John is sitting in prison thinking of himself as the prophet who has come in the line of Elijah. John is not looking for another prophet. John's got that covered. He's looking for a rescuer, one who will come and who will deliver Israel and who will establish the kingdom now. 
Now, Jesus' response to John is very interesting. It's very subtle, and I think we'll miss something if we don't slow down and pay attention. Here's what Jesus does. He quotes a part to remind John of the whole. I'll say that again. He quotes a part to remind John of the whole. We do this all the time. We do it in little things. And in the course of a conversation, you might say something like, well, you know, good things come, and just leave it hanging while we fill in the rest. Or you might say, well, if you want something done right... We all know what comes after that. Or, or we also do this in big things. For instance, if you're in, a, in an assembly and you say, I have a dream, you're not just referencing one sentence as a part of one speech or even one man's life. You're referencing a movement about a people who refuse to give in to hatred. Now this verbal shorthand, quoting a part to reference a whole, was a way that the Jews taught called remez. I asked, I asked my English professor buddies and they said the closest thing we've got to it in English is an allusion. Jesus did it in other places, most often when he did it from the cross in Psalm 22. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he wanted to do, he wanted his hearers to realize, oh, that's Psalm 22. And then go back and read Psalm 22 and learn. That's what Jesus is hoping John will do here. So let's take a look at what Jesus was quoting. Let's go back and read this. Let's look at Isaiah 28, verses 18 and 19. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The meek will obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind will exult in the Holy One of Israel. That all sounds pretty familiar, right? But listen to the next line from verse 20. For the ruthless will come to nothing. Another translation puts it, for the tyrant shall be no more. That would have been good news to John. Let's flip over to Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's the, that's the part that Jesus gives us. Now let's listen for the whole. Let's listen to what surrounds that. These are just the next following verses. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, The grass will become reeds and rushes. Those are pretty great promises of deliverance for a guy who grew up in a desert. But he's not done. Let's keep going. Remember, he gave us a part to remember a whole. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be on their heads. They will obtain gladness and joy and all sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Those are pretty great promises for a man announcing the coming of a kingdom. You see, I believe John doubted because he misunderstood the true prophesied signs of the inbreaking of the kingdom. He expected a military leader, but he forgot that the kingdom, my friends, is upside down. That the military powers are best subverted by God's love. Although by, referencing a, by, by speaking a part to reference a whole, He also reminded John of the hope that one day the king will come, one day the people will come home, and one day the tyrant will be no more. So in John's doubting, I want us, particularly those of us who struggle with doubt, to hear two things. First of all, it was John's own misunderstanding of what God was really up to that led to his doubt and disappointment with God. You see, God didn't fail. God didn't drop the ball. John misunderstood what success really looks like in an upside-down kingdom. 
How often, for those of us who struggle with doubt, does the enemy make so much of our misunderstandings of what success looks like in an upside-down kingdom that wind up causing us doubt? How many of our sleepless nights or those things that we hide in the corners of our hearts that we won't even speak about to our spouses come from misunderstanding the full picture of what God is really up to in redeeming his world? And the other thing I want you to hear, doubt does not destroy our relationship with Jesus. Properly addressed, it deepens it. See, Luke never actually gets around to telling us John's reaction. We do know that he went to his grave never once renouncing his role as the way preparer for the Christ. Doubt, kept in the dark of a prison cell, would have been poison for John. So he relied on his brothers to take his questions and doubts and fears to the Christ, and he was blessed. His doubt did not destroy his relationship, but it deepened it. Doubt, kept in the corners, the dark corners of our hearts and minds, can become poison for us. We ought to follow John's examples and take, take these doubts to the Christ so that we too can be blessed, just as John was. And I'll be honest, it is something that's made a whole lot easier when you do it with family. So that's where we're going to turn now. 2,000 years ago, John lived to point people to repentance and to point them to the Christ. Today, his words and the story of his life live on doing the same for us. So you're called to three things this morning. First of all, you were called this morning to repent. This was his message. The kingdom of God is at hand, so you must repent. If there is unconfessed sin in your life, then your walk with Jesus will never be what you want it to be, nor what he wants it to be. Secondly, you're called this morning to live out your salvation where you live, where you work, where you play, where you are, which is a task to which we are all unequal. Instead, come this morning, receive the prayers of your family to leave this place changed. Leave this place equipped by the indwelling of the Spirit and the prayers of your family to finally live into who you were made to be in this upside-down kingdom. And finally, to you doubters in the room, if you're chained in the prison of doubt, if you find yourself wondering whether or not you truly believe these stories, if you find yourself downside up in this upside-down kingdom, you're called to bring your doubts to Jesus. Do it just like John did. Send your brothers and sisters on your behalf. Come to this front row and let's send us to Jesus on your behalf to ask if he really is the one that our hearts have been longing for all of our lives. And together we will eagerly await his answer. So this morning, these are the things to which you're called as John once more points us to the Christ. Let's stand and sing.